0: Welcome to Disrupting Japan, straight talk from Japan's most successful entrepreneurs. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for joining me. Today, we're going to talk about robots, specifically industrial robots. Now, Japan has been a global leader in robotics for decades, but in recent years, Japanese firms seem to be losing ground to the better-funded and better-publicized companies coming out of the U.S. and China. Well, today we're going to sit down with the founder of a company that is already starting to change that. Issei Takino founded Mujin with his co-founder, Rosen Dinakov, and they have developed a kind of android for industrial robots. That is to say, it's a generic operating system that works with almost any hardware and works far more effectively than anything else in the industry. Issei and I go into some of the details during the interview, but perhaps the clearest illustration of Mujin's success was a project they did for Chinese e-commerce giant JD. They developed the world's first fully automated logistics warehouse. It's a massive facility, but almost no humans work there. Robots unload the trucks, stock the shelves, pick the items for delivery and then pack them and ship them out. It's hard to explain in an audio podcast, so check out the video. Uh, We've got a link at the site, and it's really amazing to watch. Issei and I also talk about how Japan and the West look at robots very differently, and how that might be holding America back. He also shares his experience and advice about founding and running a startup as a multinational team, And we talk about why these kinds of Japanese foreign partnerships are going to become more common and more important in the coming years. But you know, Issei tells that story much better than I can. So let's get right to the interview. All right, so I'm sitting here with Issei Takino of Mujin, the maker of controllers for industrial robots. So thanks for sitting down with me. Oh, it's my pleasure thank you, thank you for inviting Well, I'm glad after all the technical difficulties that we're finally able to sit down and talk <laughs> Why don't you tell everyone what exactly the Mujin controller is and why it's important
1: So basically like uh, a Mujin controller it's, it's, it's like Android and uh, like an uh, iOS in the uh, cell phone industries Right now like an uh, industrial robot is actually needed with the highest demand ever However, you know Nestle robot is very harder to use, right. and then like UI, you know, interface is everything different. Every makers, you know, everything different by the every makers. <laughs> so it's like a harder to use, and the robot is not smart, that's why application is limited. So
0: the Muzin controller is basically an operating system for industrial robots that sits on top of the basic hardware. Yes. So it'll run on any manufacturer's robot, yeah. theoretically. Yeah, exactly. That's fantastic. I can see why that is great for people who want to develop applications for industrial robots or the buyers of industrial robots. Yeah. But aren't the manufacturers worried about this? I mean don't they look at you and say, well wait a minute, this is Mujin is doing to us what Microsoft did to PCs. Mm-hmm. They're making it commodity hardware.
1: Yes, of course like you know the everybody worried. And right now, like we are the only one who get like uh, you know all the confidential information from each makers. However, in the very beginning of the, the negotiations, it always like super difficult. that in the very beginning, 2013, there's only one makers, you know, which is Densel Wave, uh, gradually you know decided you know to open up their interface first. But you know, gradually the other in you know, the robot makers they started opening. What was the
0: driver for that? Because there are so many startups who have an idea. Similar to Muji, and I mean the idea that they could provide a generic interface. Yes. yes. So, what was the trigger that made the manufacturers stop resisting and start using the Muji controller? Yes.
1: So, the basically the Uniting like an uh, in interface is not enough. That's not enough motivation for them to you know open up their confidential information, right? They try to close their system, their you know uh, you know applications the control language, everything, like they have tried to close it, right? And we're trying to open it. So this is already like conflict of interest, right? right? So, you know, to make them open, their are confidential information. We need a killer application, right? So, so what was your killer app? So our killer app is and it's called a bin picking. Bin picking? Yeah, 3D picking, so-called.
0: Right, and, and bin picking has been a, one of the most challenging parts of, of factory automation for a while because it's... Well, why don't, why don't you explain why it's so difficult?
1: So 3D picking is basically, you know, de- um, you know there are two parts. So one is like, you know, 3D vision has to detect the parts. And then, like, the robot has to move it, have to take a motion to pick up. So this, uh, there is a two, you know, parts. One is uh, detection, and the other is, you know, motions. So for human beings, you know, just like, you know, pick up from a, you know, randomly piled product is uh, right, right. super easy. Right. It's like a natural. Like for the robot, for the robot, it's super difficult for them to do it.
0: Because yeah. you could have a a bin of parts that are in yeah. all oriented in different directions, and yeah.
1: Yeah. so let me explain about the robot, like how to control the industrial robot. Uh, current way is like you have to teach. So usually, like you know, if you teach the robot, then like a robot just repeating you know, on how you teach. But like bin picking, like maybe you can see it. Like it, as long as you have like a very good three D you know, maybe they can detect the parts. But like after you know, they uh, finish detecting the parts, human beings can you know, just pick up, like, you know, as long as you can see. But a robot it has to be taught. So you have to remember, robot has to be taught. Right? The orientation and the positions, everything, you know, it's almost impossible to you know, think. You know. Every possible yeah. permutation would be yeah, yeah. overwhelming. Yes, overwhelming. And it's impossible to teach you know, beh- before. Because it, there are uh, so many like, possibilities. Of the, the all the motions, right? So, imagine one of applications, motion planning. Motion planning is like a, basically a technology which uh, makes a robot think like how to move, you know, the automatically.
0: So, is motion planning more teaching robots to be goal-oriented rather than
1: perform specific motions? Is that yeah, fair? yeah ex- exactly. With all the older technologies, even though you can detect the parts, but you still have to teach. You right. have to teach like, all the possible motions by yourself. So it's almost impossible to teach. But like, you know, with Mujin control, you know, robot can be you know, more like human beings. As long as the robot can see some things, then the robot can move. You don't have to teach. Right. Okay. Well, listen, before we dig
0: into the technology and the competition and the, the market in general, let's back up a bit and talk about you. Ah, okay. You started Mujin back in 2011 with your co-founder... Dr. Rosen-Diakov. How
1: did you two meet? Actually, everybody misunderstood that, like, actually, I convinced him to, you know, join the Mujin. But this is so wrong. Okay. So, actually, like, we met in Japan. At the time, he was an intern at the Biro College, which is uh, the most famous, like, robot startups. So, he was, like, super, like, opposite type of me. It's, it's super different. We are super different, right? So he graduated. Basically he graduated from uh, you know, UC Berkeley as a top student, and after that he uh, entered the Carnegie Mellon University, where it's the most famous, like you know, for the robotics. Yeah. And then he joined like PhD in you know, a course, like directory, and then he got PhD when he was uh, 26 years old. And after that uh, he was like doing intern in Intel and then Vero Garage and then, you know uh, Microsoft and those com- those companies. And then other time, like uh, the Vero Garage came to Japan for the exhibition. And then at the time, like they had a booth. And uh, <clears> then <throat> within uh, uh, the very smart, like genius people, there's only one Japanese guy in the Vero garage. And that was uh, my mentor in the business. And he was like one of the three guys who founded, uh, you know, uh, Goldman Sachs Japan before. All right. Yeah. So he asked me to, you know, help out because, uh, you know, I was working in uh, in Israeli companies and I was top sales. And then he knew, like, you know, I can speak English and also like Chinese, and I know the industries, right? So uh, he uh, asked me to, you know, come to help. So like, Rosen, he was like super straightforward guy. Like, once he believes, he doesn't, he, he doesn't change. But like, he somehow believed, like, this is a guy. He tried to convince me, like, you know, oh, uh, let's do the, some kind of business. But at the time he was uh, from uh, academia, so he doesn't have uh, any sense of the reality. Right. right? I mean there are so many guys talking about dream around me like at the time. So I was just ignoring him. So what, what changed your mind? What convinced you that this was a real business? So first like before the business, like he has to convince me, right? And he was he stalking me, you know, <laughs> for you know next one year, whole one year. But like you know, every month, every couple of weeks, like, he sent me the email, the long email, and then like I was so, you know, busy, so I just reply two, you know, two sentences. After 10 months or something, he sent me another email, and he said like, he's going to do a like, uh, postdoc job in Tokyo University. So he's coming to Japan. That, that was in the winter. It's a very cold day. And then he you know, texted me, um, and, can I meet you? And I said, like, no, I'm pretty busy. I'm actually in Osaka. I, I'm from Osaka. So I was in a uh, parent's house, and then, like, you know, did Aksu, right? And I cannot. And I replied. And a couple you know, hours later, he sent me the, the, the text again. I'm in the Osaka station right now.
0: Jeez. <laughs> Can, he came down to Osaka to talk Yeah, to yeah, yeah.
1: I already told him, like, I'm already in Osaka, so I cannot give him, like, more excuse <laughs> yeah, anymore. That's,
0: that's, yeah, you sort of have to meet someone when they go to that extreme. Yeah. Yeah, that's the point where you either have to go and meet them or you have to call the police and yeah, say, yeah, stay yeah, away.
1: Yeah, seriously. I mean, that was, like, almost like I called the police. Yeah. Right? We met in a cafe in Osaka stations. He you know gave me like two hours PhD motion planning techno- uh, technology presentations. So I couldn't understand like almost ninety-eight percent. But two percent, I kinda understood what you know what he has and then what he wanna do. But what he has is no product. He only has the, the technology, potential technology. Sure.
0: Right. And that's hard. I mean so many startups fail because they just have great technology and no yeah. path to market
1: yeah so i decided to make a team with him not because like i thought like i can be successful with this guy i made decisions based on the thought that maybe with this guy even if we fail uh, we can do again we can start again VCs
0: often talk about betting on the team, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you were kind of betting on the team when, you know, you were half the team.
1: Yeah. So it's a uh, it's, it's very Japanese kind of thing, I guess. <laughs> it's not very logical, right? No, but it, it seems to be
0: working out. Okay. So how did you go from there? Where you two obviously really believe in each other. What was the path from that to your first customer? Because, as you mentioned, this is an incredibly conservative industry.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, and from here to the first, you know, customers, there was so long, you know, the story. But you know, I, I will make the, the long yeah, how story long short. Has,
0: how long a time period? How long did it
1: take from like, yes, we're going to build this to yes, we've sold this? So almost uh, one and a half a year. Well, that's pretty fast. Oh, sorry. Like, you know, the first I this like first customer. Still, we didn't have the product. So, <laughs> <laughs> so you know, like, and. So after, you know, he convinced me, I still don't know, like, how to use this technology and, like, you know, what's the product, right? So I was uh, start taking him to the, my customers because I was kind of, as you a know, top sales, like, I can get into the almost any factories in around uh, the uh, Aichi, Toyota, and Denso, right? So I was taking him and then, like, you know, asking around the customers what kind of, uh, you know, applications they want or what kind of problem uh, they really the demand right now. And, uh, so were the Japanese cops one complaint I hear a
0: lot from Japanese startup founders is that they have a lot of trouble getting feedback and ideas from potential customers. Mm-hmm. So even in this conservative industry, did you find that the clients were willing to give feedback and give ideas early?
1: Um, of course, they are like very conservative, right? Especially when we talk about like something that people never done before, right? So we try to ask like robot maker's executives and you know, their opinions, but I was famous in the metalworking industries, but not in the robotics industries, right? He is very famous in the academia uh, in the robotics industry, uh, the world, but like not in the industries. So even if we go to Yaskawa or FANAC and other com- the companies, they are like, who the hell are you guys, right? <laughs> right. right. So I got the one ideas. So there's actually, their a branch in America. Each maker has a branch in America because North America is a big market too. And then the branch managers, they're like the most, you a know, very important person. Uh, always, like, in front of us go there because it's a big market. But they're relatively much, much opener than Japan's headquarters. Okay. Because they have more open atmospheres. If there's something, you know, interesting, they can, you know, meet. So me and Rosen went to America, and I tried to make an appointment, and actually I made the appointment with like, all the presidents in America, the Yaskawa, Kawasaki, Mitsubishi, Nachi Fujikoshi, uh, I made appointments appointment with uh, the plant manager of the Honda and the Toyota.
0: Okay, so it was easier to get the appointments in America than in Japan?
1: Yeah, when you don't have any, you know, the product, yes. Alright, alright. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, uh, so we get like a very good idea from, you know, this executive, exact, right? They told us like all the current problems. And the second line we hear the good idea so we will think like you know how we can solve. It. And then uh, we came back to Japan. Actually those like present, like important persons actually communicate with the headquarters. There are the, some this interesting guys. And uh, when we went back to Japan, like uh, some of the, the robot makers actually invite us for the presentation. Right? right. And then like uh, one of the, the robot makers actually offered us to have the booth. Inside their booth in the robot international and in robot exhibitions, that that was a uh, 2009, and that was before you even had a product. At the time, still I didn't have a product. We only had a, some kind of the the, the only open rave.
0: So in the booth, what were you what were you advertising in the booth? Oh, yeah, yeah, Just
1: we exist? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> good example. Uh, I mean, <laughs> a good question. We didn't even have a company name because at the time I'm still working as a you know, the sales engineer in ISCAR and here is a working as a the postdoc in Tokyo Universities we didn't even have a company so when we exhibit something in a booth international exib- in the robot exhibitions, we have to have like uh, you know, at least a company name right? It, it's useful yes right, so, useful. <laughs> so before when we introduce, it's like Issei and Rosen that's it it's very uh, kind of shady yeah. <laughs> so at the time like we decided to code on mujin and then uh, we made our only one interface but none of us is in you know, UI engineers so it, it was very kind of mock up and the kind of shitty stuff right, right. Like, only three buttons was actually working but well, this is a secret but <laughs> <laughs> three buttons out of how many uh, uh 30 or something like there are many parameters and you know, stuff but you know didn't work anymore. Uh, somehow like we exhibit and actually we exhibited robot motion optimization simulators and then the, actually, some of the companies like they sent us like so much interest and uh, canon was like you know, became like, first customers they knew like we are still startups and we didn't have nothing but they offered like to do some uh, little project so that was like uh, our beginning
0: all right so with canon it, it was like a experimental project or like a joint development type of a project
1: yeah. Uh, as you know, Canon was making like a camera, right? Right. Right. Actually, they automate like 95%. Oh, wow. So it's like the highest automation rate in Japan for the camera.
0: Well, yeah. And we were talking before, and you mentioned that the rate of factory automation is actually a whole lot lower than most people think. Yeah. So, for example, with uh, automobiles, yeah. what, like, what percentage of automobile production is really done by robots?
1: Of course, it's gonna be different. You know, depends on like automakers, but like around the five percent, only five percent is automated by the by the robot.
0: Okay, and so Canon was automating at ninety-five percent. Yeah. Now it's a different product, of course. Yeah, but different still, product. That's, but still,
1: that's pretty amazing. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. Like the one problem they had is like if you uh, automate ninety-five percent, means the sixty robot was you know, working in one line to make a one in you know, a camera, right? Each robot motions, yeah, cycle time actually like influence the production so much. So if five percent of the production rate increase, that's gonna like give them like so much of the benefit, right?
0: Right. Also, oh, this gets into what you are saying about Muji's core advantage, where it can sort of, since it's goal oriented, it can sort of optimize the motions yes, on its own.
1: Exactly. So our controllers can think all the like possible motions in uh, very short, short times. Then, like, we can optimize the motion. Then, like, we can, you know, shorten the cycle time. If we can shorten, like, one second out of five seconds, they
0: are, like... That's a 20% increase. Yeah. That's huge.
1: Yeah. So, Canon operator, they are spending their lifetime to think how to shorten the cycle time 0.5 seconds every day, (laughs) seriously. Has that project moved from
0: a pilot stage and are they actually using it in their factories today? Yeah, yeah. Excellent well actually another one of your projects that i thought was amazing was the project with jd in china it's the first fully automated logistics warehouse yeah and and the video is amazing to watch but um can you talk about that a bit
1: yeah, yeah of course like you know so uh the canon stuff i was talking like so far was uh, it's it's a little different Current way, the people is teaching like in you know, let's say 1,000 motion, 2,000 motion by hand. It's it's a hell. And then with our controllers, you know, maybe like you know, they don't have to teach anymore. So you know, it's gonna be much much easier. However, people can still do the demo if they take a the time, one years. If they wanna like you know have a the time, then they still can do it. Well, so, yeah, that's the big problem with robotics demos and artificial intelligence demos and yeah. So, so I was keep thinking, like, what was the ultimate application that only we can do? I realized that's the logistics. So you remember, even one part, one metal part, we have to teach two sudden, three sudden motions by hand. But in, if you go to logistics, like, there are so many kinds of the workplaces coming every day, right?
0: And what they're picking isn't even... They're not even picking
1: the same thing every time. Yeah. 40,000, 50,000, sometimes 100,000 in the work pieces. And then, guess what? Like 200 new work pieces. is coming every day. Who's going to teach? Not possible. It's, it's not possible. That's why you've never seen the robot in a warehouse before. We actually have tried to apply you know, our technology to the logistical uh, you know, application, the fulfillment, piece-picking application, and somehow it walked up. <laughs> somehow. <laughs> yeah. Well,
0: that's great. So Mujin's actually very aggressive in international expansion as well. And I find it interesting that a lot of startups coming out of Silicon Valley kind of wave their flag and say, right. we're San Francisco startups. And it yeah, gives yeah, them sure. kind of this credibility. As a Japan startup, does that help you? Does that hurt you?
1: It actually helps. Yeah. Yeah. Before we take the Chinese project, uh, we had a Japanese project, right? So there's, uh, I guess, like three advantages that we had in you know, other Japanese you know, startups. So one is uh, we are in a uh, you know, target rich environment. What do you mean? Target rich environment? Yeah. Means like, so once you go out, like Tokyo, then you see so many factories, so many kinds of like, uh, companies. You know, so it's not even only like Sony and Panasonic, there are so many Indian and like in FANAC, right? So we are Japanese people living in very small countries, but uh, manufacturing companies density is, I guess, the highest here.
0: Okay, once, interesting.
1: Yeah, once you walk around, you hit somebody. <laughs> and also, you, we, we can see, you know, so many different kinds of the industries. Even, even in the manufacturing, there's so many industries too, right? So many kinds of the manufacturing. And we can experience so many, like you know, the different uh, manufacturing at the same time. So this is one thing. If you go to Americas, there is not much manufacturing. This is A, B. So manufacturing company, they are not like sticking each other, right? You see the one big factory uh, outside of Los Angeles, but the like, you know, next big factory is maybe like 200 kilometers away. That's true. In Japan, it's got a bigger density of them. yeah, bigger density. So this is one thing. So second thing is Japan is not very famous for IT. However, for the manufacturing, we still have and have some respect you know, in the world as a manufacturing.
0: Right. So when you went overseas, was the fact that you were a Japanese company helpful? Or was the fact that you had Japanese manufacturing customers? Did yeah. that carry weight?
1: Yeah, I mean like a Japanese you know, manufacturing companies we are super sensitive for the safetyness and the stability and also like manufacturing qualities and those stuff is like so crazy, right? So strict in Japan. Even though I was making like an GM, you know, the, the Ford, those parts with the Honda Toyota, even the one gears, you know, the precision, everything is so different. People in the world, they think, if our product work in you know the, the manufacturing company in Japan, it means like, you know, we already passed so many like, you know, tests already. It's like over-quality already, right? We don't even have to test outside. So the Japanese customer base is just invaluable for it. Yeah, yeah. And the third thing is like, you know, customers' feedback. This is a really, really Japanese thing. But like, the field workers, how they feel that their responsibility is very strong. Regardless of their salaries, once they take the job, they will, like, feel so much responsibilities. So once we give them that our product, and they test it, right? Of course, there are so many bugs. <laughs> in the very beginning, yeah. There, there are always many, is, that's there are, Yeah, there are many, um, I guarantee. Not everybody, but if I ask, ask the, the customer in America or some other regions, they just tell us, like, oh, they couldn't do it. And then I tell them, like, so how?
0: This is really interesting because... With most software startups, I hear the opposite story. I hear that American customers provide lots of feedback and lots of advice where Japanese customers tend to be more demanding and have higher levels of support. So is there something different about the robotics industry?
1: Yeah, I mean, especially in the manufacturing or you know, like those heavy industries, right? Japan's like, feedback are very responsible. I think, in uh, you know, opposite from uh, IT, you know, the world. If you, you know, <laughs> ask the, the field workers in, uh, for example, like Ford, right? They are, like, you know, chewing the gum and, like, drinking the, ca- ca- the coffee and they are, like, assembling stuff, right? And uh, they are testing our product and I ask, ask them why. So how is uh, my product? Oh, it couldn't work out. It didn't go well. And then, so, what kind of, like, situations it didn't go out? I ask them. They just tell us, like, that's your job to, you know, solve. To find, so but in in, in Japan, other Japanese peoples, there is some kind of gamba, um, uh, Genba gamba is like uh, the field, real field. They have pride. As long as they need to, you know, complain someone, they have to clarify why they are complaining. So they prepare for the everything. Like so saw in these situations, they always like you know uh, document everything. Document everything. Do you think part of that might be
0: that the American factory workers view automation as more of a threat than the Japanese workers do? Are they maybe, like, afraid for their jobs or something?
1: Oh, yeah, I mean, that one, too. That was second reason. Japan Japan's nationality is very open for the robot. The U.S., even in Europe, they have a very strong, like, Hollywood influence. So they oh, the Terminator? Have... Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Where Japan is more Doraemon. Yeah, yeah. So they have like a negative you know, impression for the robot. They think the robot is friendly in the very beginning. They think so in the end, the robot may be like, you know, coming to you know, fight against you guys.
0: Actually, that's that's true. It's not just about like being afraid of their job. It is this overall cultural idea that in America, in movies, the robot's almost always the bad guy. Yeah.
1: And in Japanese movies, it's almost always the good guy. Yeah, almost always good guy. Diamonds, (laughs) Atom, you know, even the Godzilla. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Gundam stuff, you know. All that's a human side. I mean, this is a very interesting story. So I go to the factory, right? In order to automate, you know, some of the tasks, I have to ask field workers, you know, that working that task, right? So I came for the automations and then, can you tell me, like, how you do it? Can you show me? And then They don't have any hesitations. They're like, you know, this much, this much. And this is the difficult part. And you should do this. But if I do this same stuff in America, maybe I have to be so much careful, you know, uh, not to get stabbed, you know, from the back. (laughs) How much of that do you think is
0: this cultural like or dislike for robots? And how much of that do you think is the fact that Japanese companies don't fire staff very easily and the US companies will lay off staff fast so how much of it is just liking or disliking robots and how much do you think is people are legitimately worried about robots taking their jobs
1: mm. there are like uh, so much cultural things I guess like you know more than the you know general impression of the robot in Japanese cultures we have some kind of a beauty that all the employee is a family once we hire somebody, we shouldn't like easily you know, the lay off people because they are family. They are not employees. So this is like a Japanese beauty. It's like samurai stuff. Yeah. Sa- samurai is like, once you hire somebody, they are not like just employees. They are, they are one of the families. So it means like we cannot fire people. Otherwise, everybody thinks, oh, you are not a good leader. Right. right. In the US, maybe like in a, as long as it's logical, you know, you lay off the people, sometimes you become a good leader. But in Japan, it's not. However, we have a very limited choice, actually. We cannot lay off people. So we have to increase efficiency and productivity with the same amount of the people. Because I don't want to hire, like, you know, the more people. Well, and right now in Japan,
0: there's a real labor shortage. Yeah. So automation is absolutely necessary.
1: Yeah. Social background is actually pushing up the, our demand. Yeah. You know originally, Japanese peoples, you know, we had a good impression from the robot, and also like, we know our resources are always limited. That's why like, you know, we knew like, you know, automation is absolutely necessary for the, the growth for Japan. So once we automate something, we can make some one thing cheaper and the quality become more stable. Uh, everything is going to be so precise. If you get good stuff with a cheaper price, of course the you know, product can be sold more. Right. Then like you know, Toyota, everybody has to make another factories. Then we have to hire more. So we knew as a cultures, as in you know, our experience, we know like automation actually produces more employment. That's how we you won know, yeah. in
0: the last 40 years. And do you think that this type of automation is the solution going forward as Japan has a smaller and smaller yes. population. Yes. Yeah, other than huge amounts of immigration automation is about the only path forward. Yeah. But Japan also has a huge number of very tiny factories. Yeah. And most of these factories are not automated. They're, they're people doing the work by hand and robots themselves aren't expensive an industrial robot might cost a few million yen and last for 20 or 30 years or even longer yeah is the reason that these small factories aren't automated just the cost of teaching and training the robots
1: yeah i mean like you know the cost of the teaching is a lot that's the one thing but like more like you know teaching is very difficult Mm. it's not something like anybody can teach how you do it is like you have some kind of, uh, it's called pendant, which has a uh, flow of the text. And the flow of the text, I and mean, you have to you know, imagine how the robot moves in 3D in your head. It's super difficult. It's almost impossible. It sounds a lot like computer programming back when you had to use punch cards. Yes, seriously. I mean, the, how we program the robot hasn't been changed in the last 40 years.
0: Do you think that either using Mujin technology or other companies' technology, we're going to get robots to a point where a small factory run by five or ten people will be able to train their own robots?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, absolutely. That's the final goal. But right now, like, even big companies still yeah. difficult for the automation, <laughs> even though they have money. So, we have to automate those big companies which have like, so much resources, they are first. And then, like, you know, we go into the, the small, smaller market. All right. Yeah.
0: You mentioned before one of the unique things about Mujin is because of you and the co founder, you really have a multinational team. Yeah. So, about what, what's the ratio between like
1: Japanese staff and foreign staff at Mujin? Yeah. So, right now, so, our company has 70 employees, right now, 80% is engineer background people, 60%. Came from all over the world, so basically not Japanese.
0: Okay, how do you handle communication, and and do you have advice for other startups with mixed teams on making sure communication is effective and everyone knows what they're supposed to be doing?
1: Yeah, basically, like you have to speak English. This is one thing. You know, this is a one you know high hurdle. That you have to overcome in Japan, but like you know, our, our company's common language is absolutely English. So if you don't speak English, you are not hired. Do your do your sales staff speak English at internal sales meetings? Uh, as a sales internal sales meeting, we speak like whatever language. Like, you know, the the most of the time, maybe Japanese. Mm. But like you know, once we get a project, we have to talk to project managers, and also we have to talk to like engineers. Then like we of course speak English. But eventually, you know, uh, when we grow the company more than 100 people, you know, I cannot require all the English to all the employees. Maybe, but like for now, uh, it would have to speak. Okay. Yeah. Before we wrap up, let me ask you
0: what I call my magic wand question, and that is, if I gave you a magic wand, and I told you that you could change one thing about Japan, anything at all, the education system the way people think about risk, their attitude towards robotics, anything at all to make things better for startups and innovation in Japan, mm-hmm. what would you change? Education.
1: Education? Yeah. What would you change about it? So especially the university educations, I think like, that's necessary to be you know, improved. How, how would you improve it? Compared to America or Europe, you know, Japanese as uh, the university education. It's like when they enter the university, I'm pretty sure like uh, Japanese level is very high, but like when they graduate, for some reason, you know, they are not like uh, as hungry as other countries, and also they are not smart. Well,
0: there is that reputation that. American universities are easy to get into and hard to graduate and Japanese universities are really hard to get into but once you do, it's easy to graduate. Yeah.
1: Basically, it's like that. It's not really like true for the American university. Yeah, I... It's just like a Japanese Like they only see the test, in the one-time test, right? And once they pass the test, they enter the good university and that's their goal of their life.
0: And they have four years to just kind of enjoy themselves before real life starts.
1: Yeah. The U.S. part is like, you know, so universities, they see like whole years of high schools, like a GPA and activity, everything, right? The parents only see the test, one-time test, and that's everything. And then like a name is very important. So if you have Tokyo University or the K.O. University, then like it's almost like your job is decided.
0: So what should they be doing? Should they just be studying their subjects much harder should they be trying to collaborate with different departments ideally what kind of curriculum or activity should they be doing in japan
1: yeah so there are two things i think so one thing is like the university have to see like a whole activities like a whole how they you know um, lived when they are in uh, the high school second thing is like curriculum and also like a, they have to teach in you know, critical thinking in Japan uh-huh. because uh, Japan's beauty is whatever you uh, thought and uh, you shouldn't have a uh, you know, question this is like a, there is uh, some kind of a you know, weird notion in the bottom of the Dawa cultures for example when you have a lecture in a university and then teachers ask you in the very last do you have any questions Japanese students barely raise their hand even one people one person raise their hand that's a lot today but oh, wow. If you do it in America, everybody raise their hand, right?
0: So are they afraid to show that they don't understand the subject or they just think it's not necessary to understand it more deeply?
1: I mean, they don't think. They never doubt their taught is right or not.
0: Ah, okay. Their job is just accepting information and learning the one right answer.
1: Yeah. How to obey, how to carry out. You know, your mission is like it's a samurai it's very important we don't really like doubt whatever we are given
0: yeah I think that's that's a good point I, I, I think university would be a good place to kind of break that idea that there's always one right answer
1: yeah.
0: and your job is just to find it
1: yeah it's like I'm not asking your questions right I'm not asking your opinions just do whatever I said that's what like Japanese is. <laughs> you know, it's, it's more like military stuff
0: Right, yeah. But
1: there's a good point point, a bad point. So a good point is, like, you know, once someone says, like, really good things, everybody can go into, like, a one direction without any questions. So it's very quick. Once the direction is right, then, like, we can actually walk very efficiently.
0: Yeah, it's incredibly efficient if you know exactly where you want to go. Yeah. But I guess in Japan, the problem is we're not sure where we want to go right now.
1: Yeah, but still, like, in you know, the there's a beauty. Everybody follow the rule, right? So this is a good part, but... In the educations, you know, for the innovations, that's not a good part. Programming, software engineering, those ones, like, you know, we have to do, like, critical things all the time. You shouldn't have the like, common sense. But Japanese education, we, you know, teach, like, you know, have a common sense. So this is uh, very different. Right. Do you, do you think that's changing now? It's relatively changing now. Changing now, but still, like, very slow. But you know, we ha- start having like a, you know, success stories, you know, around the universities, right? Well, the University of Tokyo
0: has produced a huge number of startups in the last four or five years. Yeah. So, at least some people are changing the way they're thinking.
1: Yeah, but still, like in Tokyo University, and then I think second was like Keio or Waseda, right? But difference between Tokyo and then you know under second is so huge still. Really. Yeah. And also, like, a difference is that talking about a student, well, somehow they are, like, you know, studying. The other, like, you know, the, 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 the students, they are, like, playing around. So, some sort of things, if I say, like, you know, curriculum has to be, like, harder. They have to take at- attendance, too. Mm-hmm. In America, you know, our attendance is taken. And also, curriculum is really hard. They don't have mercy if, they, if you are, like, under the, under the line. Anna, American professors will fail you without hesitation. Yeah, without hesitation they are like a really nice person, right? Hey, it's, uh, it's okay. Study, is not only your life. Bye-bye-bye, right? <laughs> <laughs> but Japan has like, oh, you are like the F-plus. But teacher, like, you know, I didn't write BEST. Or maybe doing like a C-plus, blah-blah-blah. This is really bad.
0: Yeah, it's not good preparation
1: for life, is it? Yeah. So universities actually valued That how, how much like a you know, graduate student is contributing to society, right? Japanese people, when they enter the university they have so much abilities but like within the four years they are spoiled. And also like when they graduate they don't have much power to fight against the smart people outside of Japan.
0: We need to keep that momentum going from high school, which is really hard, and just keep that momentum off through university. Yeah.
1: That's the difference. Like you know, we really have to like change the education. Education seems to be like long run like project, but actually like the shortest way to you know power up the, the country.
0: Is fixing the universities.
1: Yeah. That's why like, most of the, the people who did the really good startups is either Tokyo University or has experience going to outside Japan.
0: All right. Well, listen, Issei, thank you so much for sitting down with me. I oh, really no appreciate
1: it. Is it okay? Like, I didn't even talk about, like, a JD and stuff. And we're back. Issei's
0: story about how he worked to find his early adopters is interesting. Although Mujin was a Japanese startup trying to sell its innovations to Japanese companies, he had to go to America and talk to the American subsidiaries. Now, some of this can be explained by the fact that it's easier to get appointments at smaller offices rather than headquarters, but that's not all of it. In fact, there's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy at work here. Japanese enterprises believe that American companies are more innovative, and they very often overlook the innovation that is happening right here in Japan. It's a very similar sentiment to what Takumo Iwasa of Cerevo told us last year, that even though most of his customers were in Japan, he only exhibited his products at international expos because the Japanese press paid far more attention to them. In any event, Mujin's customers knew a good thing when they saw it. And being a Japanese startup, or at least having Japanese industrial customers, is now working to their advantage. Where companies worldwide assume that if Mujin can meet the demanding requirements of Japanese firms, Mujin will be able to meet theirs as well. And although we didn't really dive into it that deeply, getting an industry to move from their proprietary software and standardize on your platform, is something that many startups dream about doing, but it is profoundly difficult to pull off in practice. The fact that Mujin has convinced so many of the big robotics manufacturers to do so is proof that their product is a huge leap forward. You are going to hear a lot about Mujin in the future. They're doing something that no one else in the world is able to do, and they're just starting to go global. If you've got thoughts on robotics and automation, Issei and I would love to hear from you. So come by disruptingjapan.com show 125 and tell us about it. And hey, please also follow Disrupting Japan on Twitter and Facebook or even join our LinkedIn group. If you want to ask a question there, I guarantee you I'll respond. But most of all, thanks for listening. And thank you for letting people interested in Japanese startups know about the show. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for listening to Disrupting Japan.